Good morning, everyone. Please take your Bible and turn with me for one last time to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We are going to look at verses 33 through 36 in anticipation for what Paul is going to declare in those verses. I want to set the stage. And I want to set the stage by going all the way back to verse 17, where Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, and he declares, the righteous shall live by faith. I think that is Paul's main thesis statement in this entire epistle. And what he does, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is explain why the righteous must live by faith. In other words, he explains why this must be so, that the only way I, as a human being, can stand righteous, just, accepted, in God's sight, is through faith. Why must it be through faith? Why can't it be based on me? Why can't it be based on my works? Why can't it be based on my merit? That's what he's answering, dealing with, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And his point is simply this. We have suppressed the knowledge of God by our unrighteousness. We have squashed the truth by our sinfulness. And he makes it clear that we are all sinners in the sight of God. I mean, he, he gets right up in our faces. He really does. And he paints an extremely dark portrait of the human soul. And he declares, there is none righteous. That's why anyone who's going to stand righteous in God's sight must do so through faith. Because there is none righteous. There is none who does good. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, he presents a problem. The just must live by faith. And this is the way it has to be because of our utter sinfulness. He shifts gears, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through to the end of chapter 5. And there he explains what it means to live by Faith. And basically, he is saying this. Look, God now says to you, as someone who stands condemned in God's sight, as someone who is riddled with sin and has rebelled against God and has willfully suppressed the truth of God in your unrighteousness, God now says this to you. I am willing, I am willing to change the verdict from condemned to justified. I'm willing to do that. 
I am willing to change your legal status from unrighteous to righteous. I'm willing. I'm ready to do that. I am willing to change the sentence from death to life. And here's how it's going to be. Here's how it must be. I will justify you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Three precious prepositions. He justifies the sinner by grace alone, unmerited. Your works, my works, do not even enter into the equation. It is a gift of God. He justifies the sinner through faith. We simply receive this gift from God. And he justifies the sinner in Christ. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled God's law. Christ is righteous. Christ has lived a perfectly righteous life in the sight of God. And Christ has borne the penalty we deserved upon Calvary's cross. Therefore, God says, I am prepared to justify you by grace alone as a gift freely bestowed. I am prepared to do so through faith alone. You don't need to do anything. All you must do is receive it. And I am prepared to do so because of my son, the Lord Jesus, in Christ alone. He has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has obeyed me perfectly. He has loved me with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he has borne my wrath, that condemnation, which you deserved upon himself at Calvary's cross. Therefore, I'm prepared to change the verdict. From condemned, you're condemned, I'm prepared to change it. From condemnation to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through to the end of chapter 5. Then starting in the first verse of chapter 6, through more or less to the end of chapter 8, so verse 39, Paul introduces another subject. And he says basically this, look, I want you to understand that this change in your legal status, justification, doesn't mean you are now free to do whatever you jolly well please. No, 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 no. That is a grotesque misunderstanding of the gospel. You cannot simply say, hey, I believe. And go on and live however you please. No. The gospel has a transformative effect, impact upon the individual. Because you see, you are now one with Christ. You are one with him legally in his death, his burial, his resurrection. But understand this, by the application and the work of the Spirit of God, this is going to change you. And you must now live out who you are in Christ, your new identity, your new legal standing, this great gift that has been freely bestowed upon you, you must now live out in life what you are legally, positionally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that means anything, it means this. You're going to get serious about your sin. That's what it means. 
And you're going to mortify your sin by the Spirit. You're going to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. That's chapters 6, 7, 8, more or less. Then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, what does he do? He takes it. I mean, he just shifts gears, doesn't he? He takes us into a whole other realm. And there he establishes the simple gospel. He establishes what it means to be justified by grace by demonstrating for us, proving to us that our salvation in the final analysis is hidden in God's sovereign purpose of election. Why am I saved? There is only one explanation. God's sovereign grace. That is what Paul celebrates in chapters 9, 10, 11. Do you see it? Can you see the bird's eye view of the first 11 chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans and how he unpacks the gospel of God and how he explains all of these doctrines and the intricacies of this theology? He now brings it all to a head. He can barely contain himself. Toward the end of chapter 11, and look now at what he declares in the 33rd verse. Oh, exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, we're going to get into it in just a moment. Before we do... Just notice where it's placed. Just notice where these verses are placed. He doesn't say this back in the introduction, does he? He doesn't say this at the end of the epistle. He doesn't position this anywhere else in the letter. But he has intentionally positioned this great doxology, declaration, exclamation of worship at this point, this juncture. Why? Because he is transitioning from what? Explaining doctrine to applying doctrine. That is extremely significant for two reasons. Here they are. Firstly, it shows us that worship flows from doctrine. I, I submit to you. Right now, for what it's worth, I submit to you, there is no worship apart from doctrine. There might be silly sentimentality, but there is no worship apart from doctrine. All worship, when the heart is engaged, the mind is engaged, it necessarily, by definition, flows from truth. It flows from doctrine. It flows from theology. As we understand who God is, as we comprehend what God has done, 
Yes, the heart now overflows in an expression, Godward. Very important for us to grasp that. It shows us that worship flows from doctrine. Secondly, the placement of this doxology is noteworthy because it shows that worship leads to discipleship. It shows that worship leads to discipleship. In other words, there is no discipleship without worship. Uh, there really isn't any worship taking place unless it actually leads to discipleship. A worshiping heart will be an obeying heart. A worshiping heart will, will ref be reflected in an individual who then wants to know the will of this great and glorious God and actually do something about it. Actually act upon it. Actually live a life given over to glorifying this great God. And so there is this intricate relationship between these three. Doctrine, doxology, discipleship. We can't divorce them. And Paul lays that out wonderfully and powerfully for us here in his epistle to the Romans. With that said, we're ready now for the content. And let me issue a warning right now. Fire a warning over the bow. Here it is. We are about to enter a labyrinth. All right? You know what a labyrinth is, right? We are about to enter a labyrinth. If you aren't careful, you'll never find your way out again. Okay? We are about to enter a labyrinth. Get ready. We are about to enter into the very essence and nature of God. We sang beautifully, didn't we? I hope you picked up on it. Touching on so many of the themes that Paul celebrates here. We sang of it. We celebrated here. And now we're going to enter into this doxology, this exclamation of worship. Notice the structure. There is a structure. It's interesting. Paul, in verse 33, he issues this cry of exaltation. You got that? Verse 33. He then backs it up with an Old Testament citation. Verse 34, it's from the book of Isaiah, okay? Then in verse 35, he includes another Old Testament citation. This time it's not from the book of uh, Isaiah, it's from the book of Job. And then in verse 36, he issues another cry of exaltation. And so in the sermon notes, you'll see the outline there. And you'll notice two major headings and in the middle, indented over to the right, these two Old Testament citations. And so he begins over here, works himself to the Old Testament, and comes back again to exaltation. So that's the methodology we're going to follow as we wrestle with what Paul is saying here. So the first thing he does, verse 33, is he exalts in God's incomprehensibility. Do you believe that? God is incomprehensible. Uh, God is infinite, infinite, without limitation, without boundary, without measure. We are finite, very limited, very restricted, very confined, very defined. Paul here is celebrating God's incomprehensibility. He comes at it from three angles. Firstly, he mentions God's unfathomable wisdom and knowledge. Verse 33. Oh, the depth, the depth, 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, it just, is it the Mariana, Mariana Trench? Is that what it's called? Mariana's Trench, east of the Philippines, isn't it? In the Pacific Ocean. I think, if memory serves me correctly, it's the lowest part on the face of the earth, isn't it? 34, 35, 36,000 feet down. But they can measure it. Okay, we're talking about something that cannot be measured. When Paul talks about the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge, he is referring to something that is unfathomable. In other words, it's bottomless. You never reach bottom. It is too deep to sound out. God knows what was. God knows what is. God knows what will be. God knows what can be. God knows what can't be. Hear this. By one pure, simple act of his understanding, God knows all things at all times. It is a knowledge that is unfathomable. And it is a knowledge that he exercises according to infinite wisdom. This is the first thing Paul celebrates regarding God's incomprehensibility. The second is this. Unsearchable judgments. So we have unfathomable wisdom and knowledge. Now we have unsearchable judgments. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And here he is thinking of God's justice and his acts of righteousness. God disposes everything. God disposes all things according to his rule of justice. Please understand this. God's will is the rule by which he acts. Therefore, all his actions are just. Let me try to state it another way and just leave it there, suspended in air, and you can reflect on it later. God does not do something because it is just. Whatever God does is just. He is his own definition of justice. There is not a concept of justice or right that resides outside of God. He is his own rule, right? His rule is his righteousness. Therefore, by definition, all that he does is right. All that he does is good. All that he does is exceedingly excellent. His judgments are unsearchable. The third thing Paul celebrates is this. God's inscrutable ways. Verse 33, you still with me? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So unfathomable wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments. Unsearchable judgments. Here's the third. And how inscrutable his ways. It is impossible. Here he is thinking of God's providence. Governance over all things. It is impossible for any part of creation to exist for a moment. Apart from God. God rules over his creation fully and completely. 
unfathomable wisdom and knowledge, unsearchable judgments, inscrutable ways, God's incomprehensibility. Now, what does Paul do in verse 34? He backs it up. He goes to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. And here he applies it a wee bit. For who? Throws down a question here. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I don't know if Isaiah, when he penned that, if he was being... I don't know, facetious, a little cheeky. I don't, I don't know, but, but it certainly, it, it seems hints of sarcasm, doesn't it? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? One of my favorite authors, George Swinnick, he penned the following. Oh, those who hear God most clearly, hear but a faint whisper. Those who hear God most clearly, hear but a faint whisper those who see God most fully see but a small glimmer those who understand most about God understand nothing in comparison to what there is to be known who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor Paul's exaltation in God's incomprehensibility. Now picking it up in verses 35 and 36. He's going to issue another exaltation. This time focused on God's sovereignty. But the order. He reverses the order. Rather than backing it up with the text from the Old Testament. He introduces it with a text from the Old Testament. Out of the book of Job chapter 41. Who has given a gift to him that is to God? That he might be repaid. What's, what's that got to do with anything? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? You need to remember the placement of that text in the book of Job. You remember, you read the first couple of chapters of, of Job. And there you have an account of his ordeal, right? And Satan seeking permission from God to afflict Job. God grants it. And Job loses just about everything but his own life. And he enters into that pit of despair. And along come his three friends. And you have that great exchange back and forth. Some of it making sense. Some of it absolutely scandalous. And on it goes for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters. Finally, God says, enough, silence. And basically, at the end of it all, what does he say? Who are you? And where were you when I founded the universe? Tell me, that is where you find this question. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? In other words, to whom is God indebted? To whom does God owe anything? God is a perfect being, meaning... He is incapable of increase or decrease. He is incapable of change. Meaning, God doesn't require anything outside of himself. Please get this. Nor does God benefit in any way from anything outside of himself. He is a perfect being. Fully happy. 
fully content, fully satisfied. Our effect as finite creatures upon God is that of a snowball hurled at the blazing sun. A little perspective, please, is what God is saying to Job toward the end of that book. Paul grabs onto it here in his doxology, and he uses it by way of introduction to the second part of his exaltation, whereby he exalts in God's sovereignty. Verse 36, for, in other words, flowing from what I have just quoted out of the book of Job, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now what we have described for us in this verse is what the old theologians, some still today, I think it's a good word and we should reintroduce it and use it, is what they described as God's aseity. You heard that word, aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity, A in Latin, from, se in Latin, self, from self, from himself, God's aseity, meaning what? He is from himself. He owes nothing for his existence to anything outside of himself. You know, children will often ask that question. Well, if God made everything, who made God? Forget children. Some adults ask that question. Some atheists, some skeptics actually think it's a brilliant question. It's a silly question. Why? Because it's based on a ridiculous assumption, which is what? God's just like us. He isn't like us. And so the very question, well, if God made everything, who made God, implies, well, God is far more like us than he actually is. No, God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. God is a perfect being. God's aseity. He derives his existence from himself, nothing outside of himself, and he is not dependent or contingent upon anything outside of himself. And that's what the Apostle Paul celebrates here in three tremendous prepositional phrases. Firstly, from him are all things. What's he celebrating? He's celebrating the fact that this self-existent God created everything. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created Everything by his spoken word, mere word, everything that is seen, unseen, everything that exists does so by the creative, authoritative power of this God. From him are all things. It destroys naturalism. It destroys the prevailing mindset worldview in the day in which we live. Most people in American society today are naturalists. They think we actually live in a self-sustaining universe cosmos. We don't. God alone is self-sustaining. And God has brought all of this into existence. All things are from him. But Paul mentions a second prepositional phrase. 
all things are through him. And so, yes, the self-existent God created everything, but equally true, this self-existent God controls everything, everything. I was trying to meditate on that yesterday. And um, the best I could come up with was this. You imagine those moments, those rare moments, might be the morning when the sun is rising, late afternoon the sun is setting, you're sitting there in one of the rooms in your home, the lights aren't on, so there's shadows, it's darker. A beam of sunlight from the rising sun or the setting sun finds its way through the window. It's an isolated beam of sunlight. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen those? Now, some of us aren't going to want to admit this, but what do we see floating around in that beam of sunlight? Some of you ladies, not in my house, brother. No, what do we see floating around in that beam of sunlight? Dozens? Hundreds? Thousands of little particles. You know, you've seen it, right? Not one moves apart from God. He sets each in motion. He governs the direction of each. And he determines the termination point of each. All things are through him. It destroys the God of the deist. God did not simply get this thing going, wind it up like a clock, and then step back and say, well, let's see how this turns out. No. He created all things. He now governs and sustains all things. Why do leaves change color? Ultimately, I'm looking for the ultimate answer. Why do geese migrate? Why do loons call across the water? Why do stars shine? Why does the fire burn? Why does the sun rise? Why does the eye see? There is ultimately, as you work your way back, seeking to answer the question, there is only one ultimate source of reality, the aseity of God. A perfect personal being who is completely independent, self-sufficient. A self-sufficient God who has created everything. And a self-sufficient God who controls everything. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, you know, not only are all things from him, not only are all things through him, but all things are to him. In other words, everything has as its termination point God, what in particular, Paul tells us, to him be glory forever. And so this perfect being has created everything. He now controls everything, and he is directing everything toward this decisive culmination point, his glory. He gives definition to everything. Oh, Richard Hawkins, the skeptic, he has written, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. But you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. 
The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. From the lips of an atheist, the lips of a skeptic, to which my reply is, why bother living at all? What possible purpose is there to life in an atheistic worldview? Because in an atheistic worldview, in the final analysis, we are all simply animals. And there is absolutely no reason, therefore, why you shouldn't act like one. No reason whatsoever. There is no reason why your conscience shouldn't bother you over an aborted baby. There's no reason why the redefinition of marriage should even concern you. There's no reason why you should really be faithful to your spouse. There's no reason why you should derive any satisfaction from your children. There's absolutely no reason why you should be happy about anything because you, my friend, are simply a grown-up germ living between two points of meaninglessness. Oh no, Paul here completely obliterates such a silly notion which runs contrary to human experience. It just runs contrary to human experience. Thousands of years of human experience. No, from him and through him and to him are all things. There is a purpose in everything when it is properly defined by the center the center being God himself, a personal, perfect being who has brought everything into existence, who controls everything and who defines everything ultimately for his glory. I mean, it's a tremendous truth. You go back into Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and you get toward the end of chapter one and there Paul celebrates the fact that, you know, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his ascension, the fact that God has raised him from the dead, seated him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in this age and in the one to come. And he has given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How can you be apathetic in the light of that? How can life have no meaning in the light of that? We see that God is glorifying himself in creation and that this glory terminates in the church, the people of God, whereby he has determined to put on display for all eternity the resplendent glory of his nature, his essence. Oh, from him and through him and to him are all things. This self-existing God alone, therefore, is worthy of praise. You know, how are we supposed to respond to all of that? At one time, as I was working through this and studying this, I thought to myself, well, maybe I should just wrap it up with that word right at the end of verse 36 and be done with it. Amen. Truly. That's what the word means. Truly. Truly. Verily. Amen. What it, what, it, what it is, is it not? A perfect conclusion, a fitting conclusion to Paul's beautiful doxology. Just the simplicity yet profundity of the word. Amen. Amen. Truly. Verily. But I want to build on it. And I want to suggest a number of points of application. And this is what I want to start with. 
is a phrase that meant a great deal to me years ago from the pen of Jeremiah Burroughs. And Jeremiah Burroughs, as he reflected upon God, reflected, yes, on his greatness, and reflected equally so upon God's goodness, he penned the following statement. I am nothing. I have nothing. And I deserve, you guessed it, nothing. It is a great summation of verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Before this personal, perfect being, the triune God, a God whose aseity we celebrate, self-existent, self sufficient, his own cause, and therefore the cause of all else. As I stand before this God, this is the only response, dignified response, worthy response to such a great and glorious being. I am nothing. I have nothing. And I deserve nothing. I want to build on it, however, I want to build on it by what I think is just an equally powerful quotation from the reformer John Calvin. John Calvin had a very simple motto. And it was a motto he developed, yes, in light of the gospel and the God whom the gospel reveals. And his motto was this. Given who God is, given the glories of the gospel and what God has done in me, here was Calvin's motto. I offer my heart. Promptly and sincerely. That was it. I offer my heart. Promptly and severely. You put those two together, I think there is great and glorious truth there. I am nothing. I have nothing. I deserve nothing. Here's what I do. I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. What's that going to look like? It's going to look like five calls. Here we go. Application. Number one, a call to know God. It's a call to know God. One church historian has written, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Let me personalize it. Friend, what do you think is the best thing in life? Now be honest. What do you think is the best thing in life? That will bring more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. There is only one thing. It is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of the living God. This is a call to know God. It is a call to grow and increase in our knowledge of God. You think of that children's story, Prince Caspian. And you think of one of the central figures in that story, Lucy, and how she encounters in that story Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, at different junctures in that story. And at one point, she says the following to Aslan, Lucy to Aslan, Aslan, you're bigger. You're bigger. Aslan replies, that is because you are older, little one. Lucy isn't finished. She replies, it's not because you are. To which Aslan replies, I am not. But every year you grow, 
you will find me bigger. Let me ask you, is God bigger than he was last month? Really? Is God bigger than he was last year? Come on now. Let me ask you, are we growing in the knowledge of God? Do, do we gasp? Do I gasp when I just stop and just be still for a moment and think? All right, aseity, God, this self-existent, self-sufficient being, incomprehensibility, sovereignty, all that we have celebrated from him, through him, to him are all things. Do I gasp at the fact that this God has revealed himself in this book? And what do I make of this book? What do I do with this book? How do I treat this book? What is it I really think is going to bring me joy, delight, and contentment? These things are found in one place, one place alone. It is in an increasing and ever-growing knowledge of God, which is found in one place alone. It's in the Word of God. Here's the second call. It's a call to trust God. This great and glorious being, there you have him, verses 33 through 36. This great and glorious being knows everything, right? He knows what was, what is, what will be, what can be, what can't be. He knows everything. Do you know what that means? It means do the math. It means he knows you. It means he knows your feelings. It means he knows our thoughts. It means he knows our circumstances. I rest in Psalm 103, 14. God knows our frame. He knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. He knows. He knows you're a piece. You know what? Those particles floating in the, in the bee. That's you, my friend, and that's me in the grand scheme of things. I know we think we're pretty important. How's life, the world going to continue once I'm gone? But, you know, that's us, little particles of dust in that beam of sunlight. And yet God knows we are dust. And here's the wonderful truth. This God, in all, in all his resplendent glory, I mean, just spectacular when you think of him. He is not a distant tyrant. He is a triune being. And he is a God who is therefore relational by definition. And he is a God, the Son of God, who has incarnated, become like us, taken to himself body and soul, walked among us. And he is a God who has sent forth the Spirit, the third person of the triune being, to unite us with the Lord Jesus, that we, these little pieces of dust, can actually have intimate communion and fellowship with the living God. Does that not make you gasp? Does that not make your heart miss a beat? And what a call to trust him. He's not a tyrant. He is a triune relational being who has entered history, who draws near to his people, who values his people, cherishes his people, delights in his people. And what an invitation, a calling that is to trust him. Trust him when life isn't going well. Trust him when the storm clouds have gathered. Trust him when there is no light at the end of the tunnel. 
Trust him to know what is best. Trust him to actually know what it is he is doing. Trust him to know in his infinite wisdom and understanding, his unfathomable wisdom and understanding, his unsearchable judgments and his inscrutable ways that he actually knows what he's doing with me. He actually knows what's going on in my life. He actually knows how this is all going to work out. He actually knows how this is going to work out for my good. Oh, what an invitation to rest in him. It's also a call to fear him, isn't it? What is my strength? What is my knowledge? What are my achievements? What are my ambitions? What are my wants in comparison to this God? My strength, my knowledge, my achievements, my ambitions, my wants must all be reduced to nothing. That's what it means to die to self before this great God. Augustine wrote of the need to feel that we have no refuge. We have no refuge except in humility. We have no refuge except in humility. That's what Paul is getting at again in verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that he might be repaid? Oh, a little humility. Just a little poverty of spirit. Oh, just a little fear of this great God. It's a call to glorify God. It's a call to glorify him. J.I. Packer writes, Every Christian's life purpose must be to glorify God. That is our official calling. Everything we say, everything we do, all of our obedience to God's commands, all of our relationships with others, all the use we make of the gifts, talents, and opportunities that God gives us, all our adverse situations must be so managed as to give God honor and praise for his goodness to those on whom he sets his love. Glorifying God in everything is our principal goal. That's where he's going to take us next week when we get into Romans chapter 12. He's going to use that big word, therefore. Therefore, given all that I've said, what is your reasonable response? Your reasonable response is you get up on the altar. Your reasonable response is that you die to self. Your reasonable response is that you surrender everything out of praise and thanksgiving and worship of this great God with this this compulsion, this, this compulsion which you cannot satisfy, this desire to see him glorified in every aspect of your life. If he is who Paul celebrates him to be in this text, And if he has stepped into history as scripture testifies he has. And if he has become a man and given himself upon Calvary's cross for us. It requires this at the very least. That just once in a while we get our eyes off ourselves. Just once in a while. And we look upward. And we reflect on this great God. And we make it our daily ambition to make sure he is glorified in us. And fifthly, it's a call to worship God. Hear this. God is surrounded by overwhelming heavenly splendor. Sitting on the glory flashing throne. Reigning in supreme sovereignty over all nations and all centuries. His rule governs all worlds and all beings. Yet this incomparable God, 
has drawn near to us in the incarnation. It's startling. It is amazing. This God has drawn near to us in the incarnation. He who made all things was carried in the womb of a woman. He who upholds all things was held in the arms of a woman. He clothed himself with our humanity. He came so close as to experience life in a fallen world, bear our sin and shame, and taste death for us. Oh, please hear this. We placed ourselves where this marvelous God deserves to be, on the throne. And this marvelous God placed himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. Oh, that leads to worship, doesn't it? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we take these words to heart this day and we echo the cry of the Apostle Paul and we acknowledge that you are a great God. And we do worship you. We do ascribe to you glory and majesty and honor and praise. And we do thank you. For sending your son, the Lord Jesus, who became like us, emptied himself, who took the form of a servant and was obedient even to death on the cross. May you humble our hearts this day. May you encourage them by this great display of your love. May you cause our faith and our hope to grow and to be firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his great name. Amen.